Swivel. From Swivel Media and the Product Bus, this is The Bootstrap. I'm Scotty Allen. The Bootstrap is your source of news and resources all about building startups from scratch. This episode, I'm joined by Michelle Picado, co-founder of DeepStar Strategic, to talk about all things market positioning. But first, let's take a look at some things you should know. Here's the startup rundown for Thursday, the 8th of February. Following on from Birchall's crowdsourced funding report, this week saw the release of the 2023 State of Australian Startup Funding Report from Cut Through Venture and Folklore Ventures. And while the overall picture showed an expected but still devastating drop of 54% from 2022, the picture for early stage startups was not quite as grim with investors reporting more competition in the pre-seed and seed space across the year. Another upside of the economic crunch was improved investor behavior with a decrease of reports of pooled and retraded term sheets. Gold star, you ethical rich people. The report also showed a five-year peak in deal participation by all-female or mixed-gender teams at 12% and 26% respectively, but no silver lining for female-led startups, which once again raise less capital than men-only-led companies across every stage of funding. Elon Musk's startup Neuralink just announced that they have successfully planted one of their chips in the brain of a human subject for the first time, and I'm so glad it wasn't me. Startup Daily reports that the successful trial was announced via X on January 30th. However, it marks only the beginning of a long process involving competitors, financial constraints, and ethical issues. One such competitor is a Melbourne-based startup called Synchron, which boasts an implant that is minimally invasive in comparison to that of Neuralink, requiring only a small incision in the neck. Guys, I'm not here for this yet. No, no. Neuralink has already faced criticism for its treatment of animal test subjects and the departure of several company executives. And so, although this announcement marks a milestone in the world of neural startups, we are still a long way from any kind of commercial launch, and that suits me just fine. Elsewhere in Elon's universe, explicit AI deepfake images of Taylor Swift went viral across X and the internet last week, reigniting the conversation about how malicious new tech disproportionately targets and affects women. According to the Startup Daily, despite the restrictions that the majority of social media platforms have against the sharing of content on this kind, one of the images in question was viewed over 47 million times in a 17-hour period before it was removed from X, too busy implanting chips in people's brains. The proliferation of deepfake images has grown exponentially since its first recorded instance in 2017, and the use of technologies to enact gender-based harassment, abuse, and violence stretch back far further than that. While it's difficult to stem this behavior, some critics say that AI and social media companies alike could be doing more to avoid this sort of thing continuing to happen in the future. You reckon? Founders and startups who use Facebook groups as a marketing or community strategy are in for a rude shock after the surprise announcement that Meta is shutting down its Facebook groups API, which is currently used by developers and businesses to schedule posts to Facebook groups. Meta says that a change in the next Graph API version will enable this feature without the need for the group's API, but this sudden move looks to leave many developers, agencies, and smaller operators in the lurch, with owners like Daniel Birch of Post My Party which helps social sellers and others schedule and automate online parties, saying that the API's closure will put them out of business entirely. Needless to say, if you use Facebook groups as part of your marketing or community strategy, it's probably worth checking a look under the hood in the next 90 days before the new changes take effect. And finally, another would-be unicorn has bitten the rainbow dust. The Guardian reports that news startup The Messenger has rapidly shut down, laying off its employees without warning and cutting off healthcare benefits. According to staff, the Messenger's website was wiped mere hours after founder Jimmy Finkelstein informed them via email that the publication would be shutting down. This left journalists unable to access their articles as they raced to find new jobs. The media startup, which was launched on the promise of nonpartisan news, projected that it would bring in $100 million in 2024 after only making $3 million in 2023. The company also reportedly spent most of its $50 million in funding before launching. 
While Tinkelstein blames economic headwinds for the company's collapse, many of its employees have other suspicions, including the amount spent on the publication's corporate offices. I'm sure there's a logical and legitimate explanation for all of this. And that's the Startup Roundup for this episode. We'll be back in a moment. As a product-focused startup podcast, it's impossible to spend too much time talking about market positioning. What is it and what simple and affordable strategies can bootstrapping founders use to find it, reassess it, and find it again? To unpack that, I'm joined by Michelle Picardo. Michelle is the co-founder of Deep Star Strategic. She spent the last 17 years driving business growth through positioning, messaging, and go-to-market strategies across tech startups, agencies, and enterprises in Europe and Australia, and she joins us now. Michelle, welcome to The Bootstrap. Thank you so much for having me, Scotty. Good to be here. My pleasure. Tell us a bit about you and how you came to be involved in this crazy startup world. My story is a weird and wonderful one that's seen me across three continents. Most of the time, not my choice, but when life happens, you know, you make the most of it. So started my my working career actually in the Netherlands and got exposed to the explosion of startups and tech businesses there. Got to experience agency life and startup life made the move back to Australia for personal reasons and got myself into the enterprise space. So having seen marketing agency life, startup life and the struggles and hustle that comes with that, all the way through to Derrick Dinosaurs in the enterprise space and always in the tech industry for some reason, you see what's not working just as much as you see what's working. And I'm a relentless problem solver. And so when you have this drive to want to when you see something and you see that it can be fixed, you want to do something about it. And branching off on my own was really me trying to take that by the horns and go, okay, there's something that needs to be done here. I'm seeing too many good ideas fail because the basics aren't in place. And I think we've all ridden way too many hype trains and have forgotten a little bit of the basics of what it takes to build a business that is distinct and that can stand on its own legs and then can actually build sustainable growth. So part of this is taking all those learnings and bringing it back to those who are great at building the product. And I know it's a bit of an inside joke in the tech industry, you know, build it and they will come. Everyone's great at building the product, but it takes so much more than that to actually make that product make you money. Just tell me a little bit about your business. And I know know you're based in, in Queensland. Tell me a bit about what you guys do. So in a nutshell, it's growth and strategy consulting, especially around marketing for business to business tech companies. And the reason we've been very specific about that is, you know, not only to take our own medicine, but it's where the majority of my co-founder, my experience come from is we've been in that world. So we know the space, we know the kind of buyers, we know how people typically approach it. So we're able to take that experience and turn it into something. Obviously, the principles that we apply can apply to any business, but we've been very specific about, we have experience in this space. And so we have almost like a step up to be able to help there. And it's mm. it revolves around making your growth. And it sounds a bit a bit funny to say it this way, but being buyer-led especially because in the tech industry, it's so often, and I don't mean PLG as in like the motion PLG. I mean, being product led, like led by your product is like, that is the thing that you're trying to drive your business on instead of the buyer. Like we've almost lost mm-hmm. sight of that. And so yeah. our thing is very much to bring it back to being buyer led, which you think, well, shouldn't you have been that all the time, right? Why do we have to call it out? Unfortunately, you're having to call it out right now. Yeah. <laughs> Understanding your buyer. And especially like when you talk about the fact that it's never, it's never done and, and that's okay, that's normal. But the more you do understand your buyer, the easier it becomes because you're keeping up with the changes. You know, the things that we were talking about last year in our business, not quite resonating anymore because yep. new year, new challenges, you know, we've gone through different economic situations, which means the priorities of our target market have shifted slightly. It's still within the realm of what we do. It mm. shifts slightly. So then how do you communicate the thing that we're trying to do for you, but that aligns with your current objectives of this year. And so the, mm. you have to keep up with your buyers because that influences everything. But yeah. it's kind of like bringing those two sides together. What we stand for, what we're trying to do doesn't change, 
but the way we're communicating and the way that we're helping and aligning with challenges does. I feel like I'm constantly fighting build it and they will come in people's thinking and in their behavior. So when we think about that space and market positioning or product market fit, how do you define that? First of all, when you're working with people, what are the things that you're looking for in order to be able to give confidence that you've reached some level of a market positioning? Two things you're addressing there, positioning and product market fit. I love the topic of positioning. So I could talk for days on that one and I'll go into that. Product market fit is an interesting one. Basically in terms of how it's being defined or how we're being told to measure it, but also it gives you this false sense of confidence that you've made it. If you really want to build a business that lasts, you're in it for the long game. And that means constant change, Mm. constant things that you just can't see coming thrown at you Mm. and constantly adapting to changes. What you start today is not going to be relevant in three years, most of the time. So I find product market fit, it's a very interesting topic. It's also a very dangerous one for a startup to strive towards. I prefer to look at it as finding the right buyers. And that comes comes back to positioning kind of like, and, and these concepts are not new. It just kind of seems like they've been forgotten. So positioning is kind of that, if you look at, you know, levels or it's, it's that big umbrella term of where do you sit? Positioning itself, it's a relative thing, right? It's a relative concept. Mm. You are only positioned in relation to something else. Mm. So when I look at positioning and there are tons of people who talk about positioning and there are tons of frameworks to follow, lots and lots of steps. If, if I really had to break it down to something simple, it's who are you for and being super clear on who you are for. And no, that does not mean everyone and everything, especially if you're a startup. That for me, first red flag is it sounds counterintuitive to want to be for a very, very specific group, niche, whatever you want to call it. But you can't really scale unless you've proven yourself in one place, right? Mm -hmm. So being very clear on who you are for and by being clear on who you are for, it's not just about validating your problem because I've seen enough startups and businesses who have validated problems to no end, but they've never validated whether someone will pay to solve that problem. So two parts to validating a problem, right? One, does it exist? Two, will someone actually pay to solve it? That's a huge trap that a lot of businesses fall into. Mm. You get in this echo chamber. Yeah, yeah, everyone has this problem. But why am I not making sales? I love that distinction because I like to talk about hair on fire problems, that that difference between, Mm -hmm. you know, something that everyone will go, oh yeah, that's a pain to, oh my gosh, if you've got a solution for that, I'm all over it. And often we have the thing of a validated problem just means I know this industry and I know that people really struggle with X. But when I hear those articulated in pitches, often I can tell right away that it's not a, it hasn't really been well thought out, particularly when people say like, this is broken. No one has got access to X. You're like, is that true? How do you know? (laughs) How do you really prove out Mm. those sort of statements. Mm. And I think in those situations, it's really good to have, you know, the concept of red teaming. So you you want to have someone who can fight back, be the devil's advocate. You can validate the problems, but have a look at what you're not seeing as well, which is if no one has solved this yet, and I'll go through a few other ways that you go about that too, but if no one's done that, it's not just, oh, there's a big opportunity, but please question why Yes, no one's done that. Those different angles, and you look at it as like it's multifaceted because when we get on, on this train of I've got this great idea, right. you can get into this echo chamber of like, you know, self-validation and you, you get that positive feedback loop and you forget to look at, okay, but what else? What am I missing? So don't be afraid to ask the difficult questions, or if you're in your little excited bubble, find people who can Mm. see that other perspective. So going back to that first pillar, and when I look at positioning, it's kind of three pillars, right? So who are you for? Who are you against? And why you? Mm. So going back to who you're for, getting very, very clear on what are you solving? Is it something people want to pay to solve? 
another trap that I find a lot of startups fall into is the VCs become who you are for instead of paying buyers. And it's something to be quite cognizant of where there's a different way that you pitch a business. There's a different way that you articulate your plans. There's a different way that you convey your vision, right? Investors, it's, it's transactional, right? They're investing because they want to return. What do they want? They want repeatable scale mm. and they want exponential scale. You need to look at that like it's almost like that's a target market for you, right? So what are you doing in terms of how you're growing, how you're pitching, how you're selling, how you're building your product? Or who? Because at the end of the day, sustainable business is coming from your buyers. Mm. So it's it's really it's a good exercise to to be very deliberate about splitting those two. When you talk about who you are for and how you communicate that to market, your buyers are in the here and now. They want to know how you're solving the here and now. Investors often want to know, well, what's coming next, mm. right? What's the big vision that you're driving towards? Mm. You're talking about two different states. So split those, be very deliberate about splitting those, be very deliberate about your story to market is about who you are for. It's not about you, it's about who you are for with your distinction, but it's about who you are for. Investors, those sorts of groups, if you want to call that, you know, a separate target market, it's about you. They're investing in you, they're investing in your vision. It's a different story. You're talking founder stories, things like that. Your founder story is not the story you take to market. Your market story is often not the story you'll take to investors. So I like to look at the who you are for, be very, very deliberate about the different groups. If you're not bootstrapping, be very clear that that is almost a different target uh, and how you approach that. Mm. It's not the same as you approach your, your actual paying market. I love that. I, I really appreciate that distinction because I think that is where I see a lot of bootstrapping founders really kind of hit the rocks in that they either mm. don't understand that you are playing a specific game if you are looking to go down the VC road. And that means that you have to have something, as you said, that is scalable. And depending on what that is, it may be some has to be something that you are already selling at scale and that you need help to magnify, not help to get the idea off the ground. Obviously, there are startups in the science and technology space or in the ag tech space where they need an injection of investment or funds to actually build the proof of concept, but they do that work beforehand to prove out scientifically that it's possible. But if your product is a B2B SaaS product or a B2B mobile app, it needs to be making money. And you're in a much better position if you do decide that you want investment to scale, if you already have revenue, rather than that somehow people are going to fund the idea in the same way that can't just patent an idea before you you make something or have something to, to show for it. People won't invest in an idea when it's in a space that really needs to be proven by people giving you money for it first. So how do you how do you help people with that in terms of understanding, I guess, that difference, but then also where to get started? So if we if we finish covering off the pillars of the positioning, because that that's really what gives you this well-rounded picture of okay, so where are we and how are we gonna approach this, right? So you get very specific on who you are for. And then I like to look at who you are against. Your buyers will always want to know something, I guess, familiar, yeah. right? So you never want to go down the path of creating just absolutely abstract categories or solution spaces, mm. right? We need a frame of reference to understand. And especially if you are doing something that's a little different, a little more groundbreaking, bringing previously disparate services together for a new service, you know, think of Allah, Uber, right? You always want to look at what, what category are we positioning ourselves in? And within that category, mm. who are we against? I like and it. continuing my trend of twos here, two ways to look at that, right? You've got your direct competitors in that space. And please, I, I, I really hope that startups will learn not to say that they have no competitors. You always have a competitor. Actually, I'll name three of them, right? So you have direct competitors and then businesses doing 
something very similar to you, Mm -hmm. right? If that doesn't exactly exist, you are always going to have the next two. You are always going to have an alternative. So how are buyers solving this today? And it does not mean with a product like yours. It could be they're solving it with a person. They're solving it with a different process. They're solving it with technology that is so not in your frame of reference. Think, think a, a spreadsheet, right? Instead of yes. some automated um, software, there yep. is always going to be an alternative. And that is part of that litmus test of going, well, why has no one done this before? Or why are they not paying for a solution like this? Because what is the alternative? The third thing that you will always come up against is why change? Yeah. Why do anything? Why make any decision? Why buy anything? right? And so looking at those three facets of who are you up against, you're up against no decision, you're up against an alternative, and you're up against those who might be doing something very similar to you. When you look at the frame of reference of who you're up against, especially when you look at who's doing something very similar to you, or even the category that you want to position in, there's always going to be something in your buyer's heads of some brand, some solution, some way of doing things is well known in this problem space, mm. right? That's what you're positioning against. It's all perception, but that perception came from others building perception. So what perception are you going up against? And that's the first thing you need to tackle before you start looking at, oh, feature function, let's do a big matrix and let's go, oh, tick, 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 these are all the things, these are the languages we're using <laughs> to write this in, blah, blah, blah. That to me, it's a, it's a next step, right? That's not the place where you want to differentiate on product. It's very unlikely that your product will stay differentiated for long in this, uh, this day and age. I think innovation is almost ephemeral. You mm. can ride that coattail for a while. You can maybe be, if you're lucky, the leader in a particular category with breaking out with something, but you're not going to be leading for long. And you can either get into a feature rat race and keep going, oh, we need to keep innovating product or we own the story and the problem space and the way that we framed it. Mm. That's a much more sustainable place of competition than keeping on trying to do something with product. Yes, you do need to keep up, obviously. I'm not saying don't do that, but that often becomes a focus for tech companies in particular. Oh, definitely. That feature piece of, okay, we just need to add this because obviously we like doing the things that we feel like we know how to do. So if we're a developer, then we'd rather solve a problem by developing than by jumping out of our comfort zone and having more conversations with humans. Mm. Or I'm working with a a crew at the moment who have a really great product and a great idea. And it's really finding that messaging and probably a bit of change of UX in order just to make the product make a bit more sense. And part of what I've really been pushing is Yes, I can see that you're getting all these ideas of how you could develop this differently or change the UI. But right now, we are not doing any of that because until you have customers, it's deck chairs on the Titanic. What we might do is mock up something and show you screenshots to say, what about this? What about this? But until people are ready to give you money for that, you can't afford the time to develop it. So it are those those challenges. I, I want to go back to something that you were talking about a little bit earlier, which mm. was the competitor piece. I love that idea of who are we for, who are we against? And I, I really love that you pulled out, I call them perceived competitors. So it's not, you've got, you know, your direct competitors of X product, et cetera. But then another competitor could be Cheryl, the admin who has a killer spreadsheet that she loves and doesn't want to give up. And so it's not on fire. There's no squeaky wheel there. Or as you said, it might just be, are we really, we can't make up our minds. We can't make a decision, but we need to understand that we're never in that blank space where people have nothing. Even if right now what they're doing about it is they're doing nothing. You're asking people to change behavior. And that means you're asking people to change, to take a risk. And so understanding that and what is actually going to move people from taking a risk. And that's where I think that danger of the fixed product market fit state comes in is that those people might go, oh yeah, totally agreed. That is such a pain. That is totally different from, yeah, we will actually take the risk and take on the pain of change in order to use this product or do this differently. And that is, that's that real evidence. What, What are some ways that you have seen people 
get that evidence in a in a cost effective way or a quick way rather than the painful versions you can't underestimate speaking to potential buyers but the trick there is knowing what to ask mm. i i love doing buyer research the more you do it the more you realize the better ways of of unearthing these sorts of things but what are you really trying to understand? You're not trying to understand whether they will pay for your product, right? You're trying to understand their world. So flip that script, flip the view. What's happening in their worlds? Now, obviously you are steering that conversation in the problem space that, that you're building something in. But if you're asking things like, what are they trying to achieve? Now you could go down that jobs to be done framework for those who know it. If you know of, for example, Tony Ulwick from Stratagen breaks it out so nicely from a product and innovation perspective, but mm. they are trying to get something done, right? We all have jobs. Mm. We all have things that we need to do. We're all measured on things. Put yourself in their shoes. What are they trying to get done? What are they currently sitting with? So how are they trying to maybe solve it currently? Mm. What's not working? What are the pains? How is it impacting them? How is it impacting those around them? And what would be those triggers, right, to make them want to change? Because if you think about it, us as human beings and diving into behavioral science is never going to be a bad thing for anyone going into business. But what do we want as, as human beings is certainty, right? Making a change is uncertain. So when you're asking a buyer to make a change, how do you help them get that certainty as much as possible with the big uncertainty mm. that it's changed. And that's why buyers like to know things like, well, where have you done it before, et cetera. But also the more that you understand their problem space and can align with their problem space when you don't have that whole customer base behind you as a startup, mm. it's all about certainty. So look at it through that lens of building certainty with buyers. Look at how others have done it. A lot of journeys to growth happen in different ways. And it's, it's a decision that you make at the end of the day. I like to look at, for example, the likes of Figma and Canva. They're all touted for their product their growth strategies and they've hit product market fit, but dive deeper into the early years and what they actually did there. For example, yeah. Figma, I mean, they sat with their ideal buyers for years, for years creating fans, influencers, and communities before they even started making money. It's a choice, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But I think it's a reality that more people need to know that this is not like 10, 15 years ago where everyone was throwing money around for every idea. It's it's no longer like that. Anyone can come up with an idea nowadays. Tech's been democratized. You know, we have no yep. borders. Business can yep. be done from anywhere. You've got competitors coming from everywhere. So mm. how are you aligning with that space? How are you aligning with their problem? And how are you going to be the most certain choice to help them solve that problem? But obviously, and you can call it urgency, willing, willingness to pay. And so how do you get those answers? You ask those questions. And it's easy. I mean, we've got no boundaries anymore. Reach out to people on LinkedIn. Find audience testing platforms like Winter. Do a yeah. market survey. It doesn't cost that yeah. much to do. I've even seen concepts and businesses who, before even building a product, they ran some A/B testing ads to different landing pages to test which product they should actually build. So they actually tested on messaging and concept before they even built a product. So you've got different ways to be able to do this with different costs involved, obviously. But I think people are out there. And there are those more than willing to give you five, 10, 15 minutes of their time and really understand where are you trying to play and what would they pay to solve? I really love working with market researchers and people that can go into that depth of discussion guides and those sort of pieces that often make me feel not very smart. You know, when I read them, I'm like, wow, you really thought this. We work with some great people at Product Bus in that space that help um, clients there. And I'm lucky enough to get sometimes to do some of those discussions. And people usually are very happy to talk about themselves. It's really, that's not a big deal. It's kind of finding the right people and really understanding who it is that, you, that you're talking to and coming up with those kind of qualifying questions is really important. But I think as well, when we think user interviews, we think, oh, we have to survey a thousand people. Sometimes you need just to, to start with a few discussions. We're doing a piece at the moment where it's like 10 people and it's like, here's two concepts. You've already said that you're interested in this space. 
do either of these appeal to you? And we might come out of those 10 concepts and go, nope, they're both those con- conversations and go, nope, this is all, they're all stinkers, right? We're, we've got to start again. But, you know, that's time and money well spent rather than going off and building it. As you said, you've got to go back and it, the things that you aspire to be and look at how they started. I call it unicorn in a box where they want to just kind of launch a global phenomenon without ever having to talk to a human being. And it doesn't work that way. You look at how Uber no. validated, how Airbnb validated, and it was super manual. It was very painstaking, but look at where it led. Introverts or people, and particularly I think in Australian culture, we're American by birth, but I've lived here my whole adult life. Australians, we don't like talking about sales. We don't want to be pushy. We don't want to seem like we're having these really direct conversations. And yet you have to be like it. I remember the first time as a product manager that I worked with a real business development manager and kind of fairly out of the gate, she asked a client, so what kind of budget do you have? And I was like, but then I was like, oh, well, of course, I mean, that's not a rude question. That is, are we on the same page here or not? <laughs> like it's not because otherwise there's no point. She was like, yeah. leads have to be qualified leads. Otherwise they're not leads. I was like, oh, we've just been running stands at like tech shows and getting people to sign up to win an iPad. Just like, those are not leads. <laughs> you know, it is. But I think there is that kind of piece of, I want to sit in my assumptions. I want to believe in my beautiful idea. I want to launch it and they will come without having to kind of really maybe hear no. What are some yeah. ways that you've helped people get that sort of feedback or get started on that road if it's something that they're not naturally inclined to? So we've taken on that sort of research and investigation for them. It's sometimes also easier to have an external person, you know, that adage, when you're inside the jar, you can't see the label (laughs) because when (laughs) it's such a visual. Yeah. I I haven't heard of it. I love it. Really? Oh no. It's yeah. You, you, you just, you, you can't see your own thing from outside. And I mean, even with ourselves, like I do this for a living, right? But even I get stuck in my own business with all the things that I want to do and all the things how I want to help. And you do need those external soundboards. And as I said, right back at the start, even getting those to completely, you know, my my partner's very good at that, for example, I'll throw something and he will just tear it down and dissect it in a good way because you want to make sure that you're not missing anything, Mm. right? So we are often engaged to conduct that for them. It Mm. also means that when you have someone external or if you can do this yourself is you don't fall down the product rabbit hole where you're just seeking ideas to validate your own stuff to go, oh, we could build this thing next. Oh, but this thing is coming. Having having someone external to that, you can make it about the buyer and you can ask those questions. Like I said before, we also work with those audience testing platforms where we look at what is the market saying? And so if we did a survey, blind market survey, if we can find the target audience that you're roughly going after, we can get those insights from them. What are they doing? What are they talking about? What are their challenges for this year? What are they focused on? What are their most pressing needs and pains and why aren't they able to currently solve it? How would they like to solve it? So it's if you have the luxury of having some customers, right? It's very, very nice if you can look at what a customer is saying and why they chose you and what they were trying mm-hmm. to get done and how you fit mm-hmm. into their world. Blind, so people who don't know you aren't your buyers, but could be potential buyers who have nothing to do with you. It's a very unbiased view of the world. Anyone who's churned or you've lost. So things like win loss interviews, for example, you want all those perspectives, right? Because the market is who you're going after. Your customers already love you. And then you've got mm-hmm. people who didn't like you. So yeah. what what's that well rounded perspective? So there's that. And then there's also looking at running experiments in market, right? So testing. When we come up with iterations of, okay, if your data or our research is showing us a particular direction for you, how do we start to validate what will reach them, right? And it depends. It always comes down to where your buyers are. So it's not about, oh, let's go on all the channels and all the socials and start running everything there. Your buyers might not be there. Find where your buyers are. And something I love to ask in interviews is what tabs do you have open? Where else is your attention <laughs> when you're working? And it could be something completely, you know, where, where do you find information about ideas of, of things and tools you want? And it could be events. It could be a completely different channel than you're expecting. It could be they're out and about. 
It could be that they're not really mobile literate, for example. It could be so many different things. And I think that also helps curb your costs when you know where exactly your buyers are in their day-to-day that you could be getting in front of them instead of just assuming it's all the regular channels. For me, my business personally, LinkedIn is where my buyers are. And so I've gone all in on LinkedIn and I tested it and it got validated with what's coming out to me. If I wasn't getting that feedback loop, where are they? Where are they? <laughs> yes. So definitely ways and means. If we think about the, the bootstrapping founders, you know, our audience, people on a, on a budget, are there any of the, the platforms or tools that you use that are boot, more bootstrap friendly? Where do you go for that information when you have little or no budget? The street? <laughs> Hello, strangers. No, honestly, <laughs> it, there's, there's actually a concept that I've been, like, it's, it's not a new concept, but it's just a new way of thinking of this concept. And especially if you are a startup in Australia, you, your environment is always going to dictate that a little bit. I think in Australia, it's, and a lot of other countries, but here it's very much relationship-based, who you mm-hmm. know. Yeah. Building those authentic relationships, right? At the end of the day, we're all people. Yep. And I think most people are quite amenable to you reaching out and just establishing a genuine connection. Don't push something, build those genuine connections. Honestly, asking people for coffee, for lunch, for a dinner, mm-hmm. I think people are quite open to that here. And you get so much more out of just speaking to people. And there's that concept that I mentioned that more and more people are talking about increasing your luck surface. Because there is so much that just it's right place, right time, right? So increasing the surface for lucky circumstances to happen, you don't do that unless you expose yourself. So go the places, be the places, speak to the people. You look at the the background of Canva, for example, they've done so many great things, but look into how Melanie honestly networked the shite out of <laughs> being in, in the US, like she really did. She just went and tried to meet as many people as possible and have those conversations. She put herself out there. And if you think about it, like the surface that you're like increasing your luck surface, increasing your connection surface, however you want to look at that, there are so many ways to do that with getting yourself out there. And I I think you need to get over your own fear that no one is out there hoping for you to fail. I think in general, there's goodwill. And so instead of holding yourself back, I think I think you can put yourself out there and make those genuine connections. I've had completely random conversations on LinkedIn. I've had coffees and lunches with no real solid outcome. I'm not here in a sales conversation just to understand things. And it's either turned into something or it's turned into a referral into something. And so you yeah. can't really underestimate what that power of connection really can do. I mean, obviously on LinkedIn, the longer you spend on it, the more the volume of those sort of like, hey, you know, I noticed that we have so much in common because we're both human. Let's catch mm. up things like, but I, I think not just switching off to that, but really looking at where a conversation could be valuable. And it's not just about, as you said, about prospects. It can be about partnerships or just putting yourself back in that position where you're having to explain what you do because even I find with Product Bus, we've been going for a little while now, but we're still constantly refining and and niching, as it were. And the longer the gap is between the last time I had to explain what we do, the less articulate see even that bad English, you know, <laughs> the less articulately it comes out. And because I'm like, uh you know, so you gotta have you gotta put yourself in those positions, but then also just know that you don't know what you don't know. So having a different perspective or a different objection, perhaps, yeah. to what your your offer is, are things that that make you think. One thing that I think, you know, when you say you gotta you gotta get out there, that puts some people off is that that doesn't mean that you have to go to cocktail parties. It doesn't mean that you have to go to the startup stuff. That I strain my neck if I roll my eyes much more at some of the. Uh, is this really a startup, uh, you know, community, or is it just like a cruise line? Like, what are we actually doing? Personally, I don't want to go to a rave. <laughs> I don't. I don't really want to go to somewhere that where we have to be out late. And often, those things, particularly for bootstrapping founders, you're not going to make meaningful connections at those sort of things. And you're also not necessarily rubbing shoulders with people that are going to be connections for you. It's kind of a different sort of crowd. But going and having a coffee 
going to a, a breakfast mastermind, going to those kind of really more low impact things are the things that can really make the difference. And you don't have to be trapped in the dark with people that you don't really know if that's no, not your thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that leads on really nicely to this third pillar of positioning that I think a lot of businesses miss as well, or maybe on the other end of the spectrum overdo sometimes is why you, and by why you, I don't mean what's your cool little feature or function. I mean, what is your point of view? And when you talk about putting yourself out there, speaking to people, your little, mm. you know, barbecue pitch, whatever you want to call it, elevator pitch of your business, how you articulate that and the feedback you get back from who you speak to and mm. what language starts to resonate, you start to learn more and more how to tell what is distinct about what you are doing. The point of view is so important because there's a reason you're doing this, right? There's a reason you've started this. There's a reason you're trying to solve something. And even if you are going to a very crowded market, I guarantee you that everyone who started all those businesses comes from a different life story with a different background, with a different set of experiences. Might be the same problem space, or you might be looking at the problem space a little bit differently, but you're always going to have a point of view. A question I like to ask that starts to unearth that with founders that I work with is what shits you about your industry? <laughs> to be really blunt. And it gets a giggle, but then the yeah, floodgates yeah. open with all the things. And then you think, why aren't you saying that? You know, why are you trying to be all nice and going, oh, we have this beautifully packaged la 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 and it's so safe and it's so lovely instead of going, guys, there's something broken here. And mm. I have a point of view on that and yes. I'm trying to change something about it. And I don't yeah. mean with that, that you always have to be contrarian or you have to no. ruffle feathers because you can be distinct without doing that. And it can be so many different things. And this is also where I think brand gets muddied and also has a pretty bad reputation is one of the ways in which you can stand out and be different can be something like a visual angle, but brand does not equal your visual identity. Mm -hmm. It's your identity. It's your point of view. It's the, the things that make you distinct from others. Right. And so for me, all these things in terms of positioning, but especially, especially what makes you distinct, I like to look at it as putting a frame around your product. And I, I made a visual a while back on one of my posts on LinkedIn where I've got two squares of exactly the same shade of yellow and I've got two larger squares surrounding them in different colors just to illustrate the fact that the two same color squares look like they're different colors because of the frame around them. Mm -hmm. As a visual way of saying the frame you put around your product, even though it can be similar to others, that that is what aligns with who is right for you and who you are right for. So is it your approach to things? Is it the way, is it a manifesto and a belief? You look 37 signals, right? The way that they do base camp and hay. Their manifesto bleeds through everything that they do in terms of cutting the fluff. It's very simple, very straightforward products because they're a company that works on, we have this strong belief in the industry. This is our point of view. It's our manifesto. And every business that spins out of us follows that same ethos or manifesto, whatever you want to call it. It could be challenging the status quo. You look at, again, the Canva example, right, of what they did with design. Figma as well went up against a behemoth. What frame are you putting around your product? And who's that frame for? Who's that going to resonate with? Yes. So it's, those are the ways that I like to see all those pillars coming together. And then if you look at what that feeds into, that feeds into, okay, so how do you express all these things, all this positioning? And it's not, uh, and I have to side a little bit with April Dunford here, that it's not a positioning statement. Positioning statements can be super limiting because positioning is all these other things, right? And so yeah. once you have this idea of, who you're for, who you're against, why you, what makes you distinct, what's your point of view, that translates into, okay, what's that strategic way that you're going to start to communicate that, right? That, that is messaging. That messaging mm. feeds into how does that turn into copy and content? So how do you mm. actually tactically mm. start to express that in market? And that's where you start to test these ideas, right? And unless you have these building blocks in place, if you go right to the end, if you go right to, we have this flashy product, let's get it out there and let's jump on every hype and trend bandwagon that there is. That's where you see so many startups fail because then they're for everyone and they're trying to be everything. 
And it's, oh, but this customer asked for this, so let's just do that because there's nothing that's driving it behind the scenes. There's no engine that they've decided on that is, this is what we're for. There's a really good um, example, even though it's something very, very different, but um, Gorilla 76, I'm, I'm a big fan of them. I love the people who work there, but they do essentially marketing for manufacturing businesses. It's super niche, right? But that's a really nice example of a company that went, we know this is going to be successful because of this approach and we're not going to deviate and we're going to specialize, right, in this particular sector, if you want to call it that. So you look at those sorts of things, where have other companies found success and you start off there, be known for one thing, that's the perception you're going to build and be very aware that not everyone out there is going to be like, oh, I'm so ready to buy your product. Yeah. If you look at the numbers, it can range anywhere from 1% to 5 to 10%, but there are going to be very few people who are in market, which means there are very, very many people out of market, right? So how do they recall you? And that's why having this point of view and being known for one thing, like how you do it, being very clear, right, on who you're for is so important because you want people to recall you when they get into that buying situation. You want to have these things in place to affect that future state, right? And you want yeah. to be able to be recalled. How are you being recalled and no one else? I think it's scary in the beginning when you think about who are you for? And often it's like, well, I'll be for anyone that wants my business. But in fact, in order to make your message clear enough, you have to allow people, enable people to easily rule themselves out to be able to look at your messaging and go, okay, that's not for me. As long as 100% of people aren't doing that, as long as you're getting more qualified leads and conversations because you are helping people be more specific. Yeah. I'm always nervous. Like when people talk about, you're really focusing on a website and the website's not selling. My thing I'm always banging on about is, well, have you sold it yet? Because if you don't know how to sell it, you, there's no way that you can form that messaging into a website. I have had some experiences recently with our services where people have booked a, a conversation and basically have already sold themselves on the website. And that's a real validation, but that has taken a hell of a lot of work and messaging yep. and effort to kind of get to that point. And it's still in the early stages. Often when you look at things, particularly things that have been kind of going for a little while, you can see all the stuff that's added on about, it could be for this or business, or veterinarians, or <laughs> because, you know, there's all the ways that, you know, you, that you, where you could sell this, but at some point you have to decide, and it doesn't mean that you can only sell to one vertical forever. It means that if this is the place where it's going to kick off, focus there, but it, it is scary, isn't it? It is, yeah. How do you help people see the value of working with a strategist, particularly in the early stages, because often people, they're like, we don't have much money. We really need a salesperson. We need another development resource. And one thing that I find sometimes is a challenge is explaining the value that you get out of strategy, even though it may not be bringing a sale in the door tomorrow. How do you sell people, I guess, on that proposition? The funny thing about words. So a huge part of it is strategy. But we're also the strategists who start the implementation with you. So we're not just the talkers. We're not going to leave you with a massive document. And we've been deliberate about it. We help you test these things. And we want to teach you to fish. We don't want to just come in and go, hey, let's leave you with like a 50-page report. Okay. So that's one of the things. Another thing is, as I said before, we know where our buyers are. And so we're constantly putting ourselves out there. So we're really big on an organic LinkedIn strategy because it works for us. and it validated that it works for us. And so a lot of our thinking, our approaches, our perspective and point of view on things we share when people align with that, that tends to start those conversations. And you see more of that pool of yeah. who's right for us rather than having yeah. to constantly push out to market. So it's those sorts of things that we've done, but also being very clear on it's, it's outcome driven. And all the things that I talked about throughout this, this call with all the pillars of positioning and then how do you translate that? That doesn't have to be a six-month process. You know, we've, we've done really rapid iterations to be able to test it where mm. you do a good workshop, you sit down, you get some things out there. Okay, how would we articulate this? And let's start testing it. Let's start putting it out there. 
And you can do that in a short space of time, not have to worry about massive research because all these things can keep rolling on. And when you talked before about numbers of 10 to 15 people, even with the audience testing platforms that we work with, they rarely go beyond 30 people to test. And that is enough to validate something. So these things don't have to be huge. I'd prefer to be experimental. And so the way that we do work with clients is a lot of these like little loops, right? While we're building your foundation, let's try and validate the first experiment and see if this works. Let's get that out there. What feedback do we get? Okay, how does that continue to build our foundation? And so more of that, whether you want to call it agile way of working instead of waterfall, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, the ways of working matter just as much as what we're talking about. Last question we ask everyone. Mm. If you could only give one piece of advice to an early stage founder, what would it be? Stay curious. <laughs> I say that because if you stay curious, you'll always be wanting to learn and challenge and try different things. You won't mm-hmm. copy. You won't fall into the trap of being in your echo chamber. I think if, if you stay curious, you'll expand what you're doing and find the things that work for you and you'll keep trying things and find the things that work. I love that. I love that. No, it is a very, because I think, you know, often there is security in feeling like, you know, and we all like that. We talked about that throughout this conversation. We don't like that kind of state of like, I'm not sure. I don't know. And you have to actually be okay with risk-taking, with ambiguity, with, learning new things. That's why I, I started off as an educator and I really fell into technology because of you know a couple of weird circumstances, but also because I think I just wasn't afraid of breaking things. I like trying mm. new things. And so I never, you know, some people can't really use tech or software well because they're too afraid of making a mistake. Or they or something goes wrong and they're like, uh, oh, tried that once, shut down, never touched it again. And because I didn't have that fear of breaking things, that curiosity, I think it is something that does help in that space. So that is the first time somebody said that, and that is a great answer. <laughs> Michelle, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much, Scotty. It was a great talk. You can follow Michelle Picardo on LinkedIn and find out more about Deep Star Strategic at deepstarstrategic.com. And that's it for the Bootstrap for this week. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe or follow the show wherever you listen. And of course, we'd love a positive rating and review to help others find our program. Even better, share the show with a friend, maybe the person sitting next to you on the train. If you want to spring for sky riding, we're not going to say no. We now have our own LinkedIn page. Just search the Bootstrap Startups from Scratch. We're on Instagram and Facebook, and our YouTube channel is launching soon. The product bus is on most platforms, and you can interact with the Bootstrap post there. We would love to hear from you. The Bootstrap is a production of Swivel Media and the product bus. It was developed by me, Scotty Allen, and Declan McGee. This episode was produced and written by Declan McGee. We were edited by Sammy Perriman, sound design and mixed by Rob Clark. Our executive producers are Tiffany Ashdown and me for Highland Road. If you're an early stage founder looking for resources and practical help, check out theproductbus.com and get in touch.